All right, so we're going to try something different today. Um, today's a little bit more about teaching than it is preaching. And so I've got an iPad up here that I'm going to like run slides on, and we'll see how that goes. Um, I may abandon ship in the middle of all this, and we just may go back to uh, the preaching of God's Word. But nonetheless, um, I'm really excited about today. Um, if you have uh, been around me for the last few days, I've been using this analogy of these 90s 3D posters that you kind of just stare at in the mall until your mind goes crazy or you see the T-Rex or the Saturn. Um, basically, there was all sorts of those, those posters uh, and you stared at them and I don't remember any others than the T-Rex or the Saturn. Maybe there was a city, um, but maybe if you were a connoisseur of such things or maybe you were fortunate enough to have one hanging in your home growing up, man, weren't you the talk of the neighborhood? Uh, and you actually bought one of those little things at the kiosk instead of just passed by, right? That was when kiosks in malls uh, were somewhat entertaining. Not so today. Uh, now it's about um, whatever oils they're pushing or whatever scent they're pushing, uh, not about cool experiences, right? We don't even go to the mall anymore. But nonetheless, here we are this morning. We are in a passage um, that is a little bit like a 3D poster of the 90s. You're staring at it, you just read it, and you're still kind of going, okay, all right, we could just skip that maybe. How does that actually work in real life? At least that's how uh, I felt about looking at this. Um, it reminds me a little bit um, about the beauty that we can kind of find on accident if we would just stare at the scriptures for long enough. If we would just dig in a little bit beyond the difficulty and the uncertainty that we may have at first glance. It's a little bit like my childhood, and I don't know if any of you have grown up in a certain way, but there's just a point in your childhood, um, and, and so for any student in here, like there's just a point in your childhood where you go, man, at some point, why do we do this? Like, why do my parents get up every Sunday morning when they could sleep in or make me pancakes? Why do they then drag me up here to set up chairs like Kara and Jessa and Carter and Miles? We're all up here and many others. We're all up here set up chairs and getting this place ready. Why are they dedicated to this? What is the purpose? For me, I grew up Roman Catholic. So there was a point where it was just like, why do we confess? Why do we go to the confession room? Why do we why do we why do we I need to do communion? Why do I pray to a saint? Why do I pray the rosary? Why do I do all, why do I need to go every week? Yes, the Shipley's Donuts were delicious. And that was the only thing that I could think of as the redeeming value of my church experience growing up. But there came a point at some point in my childhood where I just started to ask the questions, why are we doing what we're doing? And my prayer for us is that we would kind of start asking that question. What are we doing and why are we doing that? Are we doing it as some sort of scorekeeping mechanism to God are we doing some things so that we can get something from God or are we doing things out of response out of how much God has given us? Because here is the trick. Here's the trick. Every religious system, every economy that you've ever been in, every kingdom you've ever stepped foot in except for the kingdom of God works this way. You do good and you'll get rewarded. You do bad, and you'll get punished. And the kingdom of God comes, and, he, and Jesus flips everything upside down, and he says, no longer is there a merit system. Instead, I have done the good, and you reap the reward that I have earned on your behalf. That's grace. That's mercy. That's the love of God. See, every religious system, 
does something different. The Buddhists believe in karma, which is just scorekeeping, right? I do good and somehow it will be given back to me. Um, like Muslims, they believe in, in, in prayer and the five pillars of their faith of almsgiving and fasting. The Jews believe that if you, if you, if you bring your, your sacrifice to a temple which doesn't stand anymore, then you will be accepted by God. But it's not just these other things, it's also the one of my own childhood, and, and dare I say, even agnostics would say that there is a God, and if I would just adhere to my own moral value system, then I'll be accepted by whatever version of God that we have. The problem is this, right? No matter if you make up your own moral value system or not, we can't hold to it 100%. There's always hypocrisy running around in our hearts. Like I love this whole thing about the Astros because it just shows a little bit of humility that's behind the curtain. And, and I don't know if you know of the saga, but like Trevor Bauer, who's always just been jabbing at the Astros for the last few years about us cheating. Somehow he's now vindicated and he's been on, uh, on Twitter and he's kind of asking Siri, um, like, hey, what's the defini definition of hypocrisy? And then he just lets Siri define hypocrisy, basically saying one thing and doing the other. And he goes, okay, say no more. And he clicks done and then his, his tweet is over, right? Like that's, that's, that's actually, it's true about all of us. And so when the enemy whispers to us that we're, we're hypocrites, we just go, yep, the worst you got? Of course we are. We don't live in this economy of do good, get good. We live in this economy of we're bad, God's good. See, that's the beauty. The question is, do we believe it? Today, as we enter into this 3D poster, staring at dots and wondering when the picture will become clear, it's really uh, uh, this promise or th this, this reality over us that we are children of promise. Did that work? Oh man, my life is gonna go so well today. This is great. We are children of promise. There is a promise over us that God has declared and the question for us is do we believe it or are we going to go back into slavery, Paul will say, and rely on, on, on other systems of merit. So let me just say this. This is the most scandalous thing I'll say all day. You ready for controversy? Y'all need to all go sit next to her. And then y'all need to build this chorus of uh-huh. Here it is, you ready? This is the most scandalous thing I'm gonna say all day. God is fully pleased with you. Period. I put the period there on purpose. God is fully pleased with you. Just the way you are, if you believe in Christ, he is absolutely, wholly, and fully pleased with you. So you got into this week and you nailed it. Awesome. Didn't even move the needle with the Lord. Or you got into this week and you failed at everything. Awesome. Didn't even move the needle with the Lord. Like there's no, there's no like applause meter or, or decibel up for Jesus. I don't know if you saw those signs in Kansas City last week where they were gonna get louder and somehow that was gonna improve the game. There's no decibel up for Jesus. Instead, he, he remains faithful to love us exactly 
who we are. And so there's this great quote by this great man who's since passed, and he says this, do you really believe, do you really believe that God loves you? Do you really believe that he loves you for who you are and not as you should be? And he would go on to say, because you'll never be as you should be. That's a scandalous thought by one Brennan, the late Brennan Manning. Do you really believe that God loves you for free? Do you really believe that you're a sinner deserving of the wrath of God, but instead receiving the free gift of eternal life? So as we enter into Galatians 4, 21 through 31, hang with me. It's going to be worth it, but we're going to stare at dots for a little bit. And that's why I'm putting these things before you, because I think we need to see a few things. Otherwise, we'll just, it'll always be dots. So let's understand the history with which Paul draws his conclusion out of Galatians 4. He is going to do a deep dive into Genesis 12 to 21. And for us to understand what's going on, I figured we could just put like an overview up here. We're not going to dig into these passages one by one. Instead, we're just going to get an overview as to what Paul is drawing from as he invites us into what's going on in Galatians chapter four. So this is the background so that we understand what's going on. So uh, Galatians 4, 21 through 22 say this. So tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? This is his invitation. He was just finished by saying, I'm without words for you, Galatians. I'm perplexed about you that you're continuing on this path. So if you wanna be under the law, do you even listen to the law? Do you even know what's in there? Do you even understand the full requirements? Do you really wanna be under that system of merit? And then he goes into this illustration. The Bible, it, it, they've translated it allegory, but it's really an illustration from the Old Testament for tw for, uh, in 22. So this is the bad part, is that this is not gonna come up on the screen. You're gonna have to use your Bible here. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And he goes in to explain all that's going on with Abraham's life. So he's gonna explain what's going on with your life, with the life of the Galatians, by drawing upon the life of Abraham. And so this is what happened in the life of Abraham. At the age of 75 for Abraham and 66 for Sarah, there was given what is known as the Abrahamic covenant out of Genesis chapter 12, where he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 15, he continues and renews the covenant. He says, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And this is what it says about Abraham. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's justification by faith right there. In Genesis 16, oh man, at the age of 86 now, 11 years has passed in Abraham's life. God's promises are yet to be fulfilled and impatience towards God's promise starts to take root. Now before we go on to judge what's about to be happening, what do you do when you feel like God's running late? What do you do when you feel like God's promises are before you and it's been 11 years? We can't wait 11 minutes in prayer. You want to wait in 11 years? It's age now 75 it was, now 86, and Sarah is impatient. 
Abraham is fine with the promise or with the, with, the, with the plan that she concocts, right? If you know this in Genesis 16, Genesis 12, Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, it's confirmed. 11 years go by. Now at age 86 and 77, they had no children. God had promised them children that their offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And they just kind of look up to the heavens and go, yeah, okay, well, maybe, hey, Abe, I'm Sarah now. Hey, Abe, maybe the Lord's promises have been given to us already and we've just been too spiritual to kind of see how practical God is. So maybe if you would just sleep with Hagar, like we'll have the promise right here. And Abraham, because he's a man, goes, I thought you'd never ask. I might as well do that. This may be, after all, God helps those who help themselves. So let's help ourselves here. And let's kind of start to, to work for the promises of God with this maidservant from Egypt. If God wants to bless all nations, maybe he's going to start with this woman from Egypt. Let's just let's go for this thing. Abraham says, okay. Hagar conceives what we now know as Ishmael what we now know is the father of, Ab uh, of all Arabic people, what we now know is the father of Islam. See, if you want to know where it diverged, why the, 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 the billboards is talking about how we're all one happy family with Jesus and Muhammad and, 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 and Abraham, is because it does all go back to Abraham. But he had two sons. And Paul is saying he had two sons, one of Isaac, the promised one, one of Ishmael, the one that came from human effort. And that's what he's breaking down for us right here. They're now aged 86 and 77. And so perhaps God's promises are through what he has already provided. Sarah consented uh, for Abraham and actually came up with this idea for him to commit adultery. And of course he could not resist in this plan. It's his wife's plan after all. She's good with it. I'm good with it. Now 13 years after that, 24 years after the original promise, there is still no child from Sarah. Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah is 90. Wow, 24 years. And this is the promise from God that he comes in and he says, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will become the nations. Listen to this. Kings of peoples shall come from Sarah. Amazing. Sarah is now 90 years old. You want to know why God delays sometimes in our lives? Because he wants to make it impossible for us to take credit. 99 to 90, you ain't taking much credit there, Abraham and Sarah. Everything is worn out, it says in the Bible, and broke. So God's got to do work. There is no way for you to take credit, oh man of faith, you can't concoct this plan now. Oh, there's something more beautiful here. It's the promises of God coming true. And so 24 years after the promise was given, God comes back and says, you guys, you can't give up on this. I'm still good. I'm still faithful. What I said was gonna happen is gonna happen. And then in Genesis 21, what happens? 
Sarah gives birth to Isaac at the ripe old age of 191. If you think you're tired chasing around your toddler, I don't know what it's like to be 100. I hope I get that chance. But I'll bet it was a little bit more tiring than whatever I got. So then it's no wonder that Ishmael, now 13, 14 years older than Isaac, gets bitter. It's no wonder that he now has to probably play a role of older brother that he doesn't want. It's no wonder then that he starts to, to chastise Isaac as soon as he's weaned. That's pretty, it's pretty soon to start making fun of your little brother. And then all of a sudden, what happens? God does indeed cast Hagar and Ishmael out. You can't, there's no place for you in the home and the household of God for you are a child of the flesh. You got to go. Interesting. This is the story that Paul is referring to now in Galatians 4 for us, all right? We're starting to see some dots come into focus a little bit. Still some dots. Don't see the quite the full picture here. So Abraham's two sons, right? And we're just going to read through uh, uh, Galatians 4, 22 a little bit, right? So we start in 22. Here we go. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. That would be Hagar and that would be Sarah. That would be Ishmael and that would be Isaac, right? Hagar is the slave woman. Sarah is the free woman. We continue on in verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Hmm. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. Human effort? God's word. I want you to see that over and over again for our lives. Human effort? Maybe I was just getting impatient here, Lord. Maybe, maybe, maybe you need me to, to do something. He doesn't need us. He just wants us. Instead, there's this promise for us. He's going to do it. He said he would do it. We believe him. So we just read all that, right? And then he starts to bring it uh, really in a, in a direction that we didn't think was going to happen. So he goes on, right? Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically or as an illustration. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bear, uh, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. I want you to understand what Paul just did. He just called the law of Moses illegitimate for bearing children of promise. Still good, still useful, still part of the plan, but that is a controversial statement for him to say the law, Mosaic law, is this law of slavery. Well, it's no wonder that he would say that in this context to the Galatian believers because they're starting to believe in the law. They're starting to go back to circumcision and these, these seasonal feasts and, 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 in matter of fact, all of the law. And so he's going, hey, look, that was good for a time, but that's not the promise because it's human effort. Fascinating, right? So she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, this Hagar, this slave woman, this system of sacrifice set up right now while he's, uh, while he's writing this, set up right now in the present Jerusalem. He just called Jerusalem a son of the slave woman. Wow. That doesn't mean anything for us, but that was very controversial for them. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. 
That Jerusalem above is the very thing that Hebrews 11 says was at the forefront of Abraham's mind. Hebrews 11.10 says this. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. For he was looking to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's Abraham. He's looking to this city, not the present Jerusalem, but a Jerusalem that only God can design and be for us. So it's this Jerusalem above. It's this, it's this spiritual city that we're all citizens of. In 1 Peter, it talks about how we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? It's unseen, but it is promised. And so I ask, do we believe that? And that mother is Sarah, the free woman. But now Paul cites in verse 27, keep reading with me if you've got your Bible, Verse 27, he says this about Sarah, right? But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. The present Jerusalem produces slaves. This Jerusalem from above produces free people. And then he says this in verse 27. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear and break, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. In other words, this was written. He is quoting Isaiah 54.1, where it is written to the people of Israel as they are headed into exile. And he says, I know you're losing children along the way. I know that you're losing heart and losing faith along the way, but there is a promise. The future will be better than your present reality. You will bear more children in the future than you ever dreamt or imagined. Again, a promise into the future. So keep coming with me because I think this is the question. Do we believe that we are the fulfillment of that promise? We are the people who are the children that God promised God's people so long ago. It's us. It's, it's Gentiles. We are the nations that have been blessed by Abraham. See, in Galatians 4.28, which we are about to read, here is what it says, right? Uh, right there. So now you brothers, like Isaac, you are children of promise. This is just a reiteration of Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We belong to Abraham. We belong to a promise. I keep using that word. I want you to just hear it. It's promise. So this is what's going on. And this is the bottom line for Paul. This is the bottom line for us. I hope you saw the two things that, that, that Paul is, is, is laying out for us historically so that we can start to get some bottom line stuff and then we'll get to some takeaways here in just a second. But here's the bottom line for Paul and for us. Reliance upon human effort is slavery. Reliance on very good things is slavery. Reliance on a mosaic, the Mosaic law, law of Moses, slavery. Now I want you to hear something. 2 Peter 1, verse 5 says, make every effort to add to your faith. Effort is not a bad thing. Using effort to earn something from God, that's the bad thing. So when we start to over-rely on our efforts so that we get things from God, Paul is calling that slavery for us. And I don't know about your week, but I can go back and I can just think like all this technology and all the things that are new for me, I just go, Lord, I'm just gonna be on my best behavior so you don't abandon me from the stage, okay? But there's a part of me that that's in there. 
right? But this is the truth, is that God's gonna do what he wants to do, right? Effort's a good thing, but reliance on effort to get God's attention is very dangerous. A moral law, a mosaic law, anything, he says, is slavery, is captive to the flesh, is, is captive to our own efforts, and those that are captive to our own efforts, your mood and your spiritual well-being will rise and fall on your own abilities, on your own faithfulness to your own system, and it's slavery. Now, here's the thing, right? We keep reading in verse 29, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. You want to know why, like, there's just some people that won't ever dig into a Christian life because it's offensive to them. It's offensive to them. And in fact, this is what the message of the false teachers in Galatia, they, they actually thought that, that God was disappointed in the people in Galatia. And worse, they thought that by their own efforts, they could get God's approval back. And wouldn't that be convenient? Wouldn't that be convenient that when you just felt bad spiritually, you just prayed a little bit, you just read a little bit of scripture, and all your worries just went away? But it's not that simple, right? There's a promise over us. And, and it's not about our efforts, although that plays a role. Certainly, we don't want to abandon our efforts, but we don't want to rely on them to get the promises of God. See, that's the difference. It's, it's a fine line. Effort's good. Reliance on it is slavery. It's no wonder, then, that Paul says, hey, you got to, just like in, with, with Ishmael and Hagar, and they had to be cast out of the family of God, so you now, Galatian believers, so you now, Grove believers, you also need to cast out. It does not belong in the family of God any reliance on works to get accepted by God. Not in your own heart, not in your own household. Could you imagine how dangerous and how difficult that would have been for Hagar and for Ishmael to be sent out? Could you imagine doing that to your own son? Why would he do it? It's not because he was just trying to preserve the promise. It's because he believed God at his word. God said he would take care of Hagar and Ishmael and make him a great nation too. And it's evident. He has made him a great nation. Many. And yet at the same time, there was this promise for Abraham that he believed deeply about Isaac it's no wonder that this casting out must happen amongst us, right? Like the, the bumper sticker, like this is what we would do, I think. Um, we, would, we would try and work with those that um, maybe don't have the gospel like at the center of their lives. It's all right, you'll get it. You come on in, it's all good. And there comes a point where that's good, right? But there also comes a point where if they are continually denying the gospel, they don't belong in the family and God says they gotta go because they're gonna spy out your freedom. They're gonna enslave you to their preferences. They're gonna enslave you to a new law. If it's not the Mosaic law, it's the one they've created in their own mind. 
So it's no wonder that the next verse, after all this, in Galatians 5, we start off next week. It says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, that we would not be enslaved to any human or religious system of effort, of earning. Why? Because we have been born from above. And so that's what happened in this passage. Now, just like, what are some good key takeaways for us? Because I think the first question that we have to ask is, do we really believe in the promises of God? Or do we get impatient with them? Do we try to produce what looks like fruit from the kingdom by our own efforts? Looks the same, but it doesn't continue to bear fruit eternally. So let me just put some takeaways for us up here. Number one, like if you're a note taker, this has got to be a dream for you today. Uh, because it's just all right here, right? And I'm gonna put it online, so it's great. So if Abraham was tempted to fulfill God's promises by human effort, it's guaranteed, so will we. Abraham was known as the man of faith. I'm not known as that guy. That's not how you describe me. Oh, he's, he's the man of faith or a man of faith. But that's what he was known as, and he was tempted and gave into the temptation to fulfill God's promises by his own effort. How are you growing impatient with God's promises? How are you tempted to attain God's promises with your own effort? Takeaway number two, those enslaved to human effort will persecute those and believe, uh, those who believe God's promises. If you want to live a godly life, the Bible says, you will undergo persecution. Can't escape it if you want to follow Jesus. You can do one or the other. You can live a comfortable, nice life without being persecuted, or you can follow Jesus and trust the God's promise is that you will be. We can't do both. And so the bumper sticker of coexist can't happen for Christians because we, we're not the same as everything else. We're not, a, we're not a system of merit. We're a system of grace, of God giving us what we do not deserve. That's the beautiful thing about that. So if you, uh, like takeaway number three, right? If you are like Hagar, which is a simple victim and yet became embittered along the way, a simple victim in this whole scheme, God sees you. That's what she says when she's sent out into the desert. She wonders what's gonna happen to her and her son. The Lord reveals himself to her and she says, oh my gosh, you are the Lord who sees me. You are El Roy. You're the one who sees my plight. You see what I've gone through. You see that I'm hurting. You see that they cast me out. You see that they rejected me. My own, I mean, I wasn't my idea to go sleep with Abraham. It was their idea. Can you imagine the injustice she must have felt? And God sees her and says, hey, I'm gonna take care of you. If you're somehow dealing with that sort of thought process and struggle, man, God sees you. He doesn't abandon you. He's near to you. He's near to you and he sees you. No matter what has gone down, no matter if it's your fault, if you've, if you've played a role in a fleshy plan, God sees you and will provide for you because that's his posture. He's generous. He's present. He's not silent nor is he absent. And so we take that and we go, but that's true. But there are consequences, right? And 
And Paul is saying that we will either make disciples of slavery or we will make disciples of freedom. And so when we speak about Jesus, will we make disciples of Hagar, of human effort and earning, or will we make disciples of, of like Sarah that believe in God's promise that if we would just believe on Jesus, you will be forgiven. Do we talk about, oh, well, you gotta get to church. Do we talk about, oh, you gotta go to a neighborhood group? You know, if you're really, you're really serious about this thing, you gotta get in a growth crew. And if you're really serious about this thing, you better serve on road crew and get in the nursery. Where is Jesus in any of that? How is that distinctively Christian at all instead of, oh my gosh, you don't know Jesus. Let me tell you the greatest love story of all time that the God of all creation who's, who numbered the stars in the sky and every planet in the galaxy and knows the number of hairs on your head knows your name. That everything that we, like the, the, play, the clay and the potter or whatever, the potter and the clay, right? It's every, nothing's a mistake. He's been planning everything, every disappointment to bring you to Jesus. Not to a church, to Jesus. We can't, we can't do this. We're not the hands and feet of Jesus. The hands and the feet of Jesus are the hands and feet of Jesus. We just play a role in all that. We point people to him. How is it that you will get fed every week? Not by coming and hearing, by coming and feasting on Jesus, the bread, the manna from heaven. Not on a pastor or pastors or leaders. It's on Jesus. And so we just kind of like all the time defer to him. He's our hope. He's the promise. Church won't fix you. Anybody that's been in church long enough that we're, we, we are not fixers. We're not good at fixing. Like, right? We, we can help. And as we help, we'll mess it up. It'll get messy. And you'll get mad about it. And you get disappointed. I thought this was church. I thought you were Christians. Yep, we are. We're still in process. You're not done with me yet. You're not finished with me yet. Still rolling to follow Jesus. He's the author. He's the perfecter of our faith. So we keep pushing and keep, keep not, not because we're trying to earn, because everything's been given to us. And we're constantly just looking to him, right? We're gonna make disciples of one thing or the other with our children and with people we, we meet in our neighborhoods and in, in the networks and, and, and hopefully it's all the nations, right? That we're going to disciple people into slavery or we're going to disciple them into freedom and I guarantee you freedom's a lot easier. The disciple into slavery has to obey a lot of rules. Like I don't even know all the rules. I remember when we were sharing the gospel with one of our neighbors, she just looked at me and she goes, hey, look, I don't know all the rules of Christianity. Okay, cool, me either. Whatever that is, I don't want to be part of that. Instead, I do know that there's only one rule with Jesus, and that's trust, faith, believe. One of our final takeaways, I would say it's the final, but it's not. God wants to use you. If you're like Sarah, you were barren. She didn't have the equipment that would work. She was worn out. She laughed at God and then lied to God about laughing. Remember this story? God promises that you're going to have a child and she's, you know, 90. And she's like, that's hilarious, Lord. That's why she names her child Isaac. It means he laughs. Like, there's so much irony in the Bible, right? And then why does Ishmael get kicked out? Because he's laughing at Isaac. That's what the Bible says. Hilarious. Sad. But this is the person that God wants to use, the barren woman. When it doesn't feel like her, she's too old for this. She's, she's maybe a little bit too mature to bear fruit. I mean, let, let's just, you know, I've borne fruit in my 30s and 40s. Let's let the youngins get taken care of that. That we would somehow 
dismiss ourselves from being used by God because of excuse or because of experience. And God is inviting us Continue to trust him. Continue to trust him at his word that he wants to use us to bear fruit. That if you think you're too old, if you think you're not old enough, if you aren't mature enough, or maybe you're too mature. If you think you're not the blessed one because you don't see fruit in your life and you've been around for a long time, say 25 years that you've said you're gonna do this. I've been walking with the Lord for 25 years. Haven't made a disciple yet. Good news. God still wants to use you. God loves to use the broken, foolish things of this world to confound the wise and bring healing to others. You are blessed to be a blessing. And then finally, we are a, we are a children of promise. We are children of promise. And so I ask, do we believe this? Do I ask that we believe that we are children of promise? Because I'm gonna summarize this. This is how this passage came into focus for me this week where all the dots went away and I started to see the picture is this. Most of the Christian life can be summarized by denying the present in hope of a better future. Do you believe that? Isn't that the story of Abraham? There's a promise don't try and fulfill it on your own, Abe. There's a hope of a better future, a promise that if we would just believe him, he will make good on it. And so just some questions that I wanna, I wanna invite us to think about as we're ending. Like when we think about rest, do we believe that God's promises, do we believe God's promises that if we come to him, he will give us rest? Why do we go to him? Because he promises rest. Just as Stephen started our gathering this morning, why would we throw our anxieties and our cares on Jesus? Because the promise is he cares for us. Do we believe it? Our lives will determine on if we believe it or not. If we don't cast our anxieties and cares on Jesus, we don't believe he cares for us. If we don't go to Jesus to find our rest, we don't believe in the promise that he will give us rest. That God cares for us, right? That, that, that our prayers will come true. Do we believe in God's promise that we will receive whatever we ask for in Jesus' name? Maybe not now, maybe in the future, but why would we go to him and ask boldly for things at the throne of grace? Why would we do that? Because he said he will give it to us. Do we believe that promise? Do we believe the promise when we want to get vengeance on the people that have wronged us? Do we believe the promise or do we want to just take it into our own hands? The promise is this, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. No, no, I want to repay. That's the deal. No, no, no. And God calls us and invites us. Don't repay evil for evil. That's out of Romans 12. Don't repay evil for evil. No, no. Instead, trust the Lord that he will take vengeance in his time. The denial of a present fleshy thing that I want to work out on my own is gives way to something greater that God has promised that he will do it. Will I trust him or will I hate my enemy? Will I love my enemy because I trust him? Will I take matters into my own hands? Do I believe God's promises that he is constantly and consistently with me through thick and thin obedience and disobedience? Or do I think that somehow my goodness is securing the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us? He doesn't say, go do these things and then I'll be with you. He says, I'll be with you. Now go do these things. 
Do we believe God's promise that he's already delivered us out of darkness? Why do we deny the, 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 the momentary pleasure of sin? Why do we deny that? Because the Bible says in Colossians 1 that he has already transferred us out of the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his wonderful son. Will we believe that? Or will we go, man, I just can't help it. It's just too strong for me. I gotta go back. You're delivered. You're in the kingdom. Do we believe it? Do we believe God's promises that we are more valuable than birds of the air or lilies of the field? Or do we take provision We take provision of sustenance, of food, and security, which is closed into our own hands. You see, the absolute entirety of the Christian life is death to instant gratification by our own strength, our own wisdom, our own patience. And he calls upon Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Abraham, and he says, will you follow him even when you don't get what you want? Because here's the promises of God. And every single one of them are yes and amen in Christ. Not in Steve, not in Heather, not in Nicole, not in Lance, not in living by that name. That ain't good enough. In Christ, that's where the promises find their yes and amen in him. So if we believe in him, then somehow those same promises are good for me to believe. Perhaps my greatest, one of the greatest promises is this. Do you believe that God is stingy? When we run out of patience for him because he who did not spare his own son. This is a promise. But gave, him, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is giving us all things. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's a call to faith and a call to trust. And I pray, Lord, that we would believe these things, that we would um, trust you beyond what we see, trust you beyond um, what we can produce, like what would a life of faith look like? It would look like, yes, being faithful to God's word, yes, being faithful and obedient to Jesus, because it says that if we love you, we'll obey you. So we're going we're to pursue obedience, but we're also not going to pursue obedience to get things from you. We're going to trust that you've already given us everything. And then out of that beautiful generosity, we're going we're to live graciously. We're going to live generously towards others. Why would I forgive my enemy? Because you have forgiven me. I don't forgive my enemy because they deserve it. I didn't deserve it. How have you loved me? I'm going to love other people. So would you you root us deep down in your grace, in your love, that this good news, this gospel message would somehow start to just grab hold of our the deepest parts of our lives and hold us in the soil, the good soil that wants to bear good fruit. We would abide in you, that you would prune us along the way. Yeah, there's gonna be pain, yeah, there's gonna be loss but only to bear more fruit. 
You prune us along the way that we can, we can grow up into this beautiful tree that bears fruit. And then, and then all of a sudden we got other brothers and sisters and we've got other trees that are near us and they're bearing fruit. And man, that looks like an apple over there and that's beautiful and I'm an orange and that's beautiful and you're an apricot and I don't even know what that is and I don't know if I've tasted that, but it looks good. And there's a kumquat over there. I love those. Oh, you're a kumquat tree. It's awesome. Let's bear fruit together as a grove. A gathering of fruit-bearing trees. Only if we would stay rooted in the promises of God that you love us, that we are who, we, who you say we are, that we're not bound in our identity based on what we have done this week or what we'll fail to do next week. We are determined by you on who we are. And you say that we're children of promise. No longer slaves but instead indwelled by the spirit of promise. Heirs with God. May we believe these things in Christ's name. Amen.